What's up, everybody? I've got an episode I'm really excited about today. Casey Kula, who currently is a Yamhill County Commissioner, is running for governor of the state of Oregon. Um, and I was telling him, I'm not even exactly sure how I became aware of him, but uh, you know, we talked about a lot of things, agriculture, cannabis, police reform, uh, the homeless crisis, what's going on uh, with the violence in Portland. We just, we covered a whole bunch of uh, issues, the system in general. You know, I, I shared some of my political frustration with him, got his feedback and his take on that. And I thought, uh, you know, I asked all the questions that I would want to ask a politician if I had the chance. And, you know, he didn't shy away from them. He didn't, uh, you know, try to deflect he walked he walked right in answered the questions and so i was really impressed uh i hope you enjoyed the episode and without further ado here it is all right welcome to little pod that could my guest today is casey kula i didn't even check to see if i did that right because i went off your instagram and said, I saw that it rhymes with hula, so I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. So I think I got it. Casey, thanks for being here. You totally nailed it. Okay, great. And it's great to be with you. Yeah, and I wanted to talk, you know, I, I don't know, I think we had some mutual friends. I'm not really exactly sure how you came on my radar, but you are running for governor in the state of Oregon. And I kind of want to talk about some of that today. I do want to do a disclaimer beforehand and say that, you know, this is the first time we've ever talked. It's not like this is some kind of, you know, campaign video. You and I have never met. We've never talked before. Um, You didn't limit anything that I could ask you about. You didn't ask me to not talk about certain things. So um, I want to be totally transparent because I do think – You know, one of the things I want to talk about is that I do think people are generally just distrustful of the media and of politicians in general. And so I think like if we're really going to start to make change and have uh, real conversations, they need to be fully transparent. And so I thought it was important for us to kind of nail that down at the beginning. I think it's a really good point. Okay. And so if you could just maybe provide a little context for people who maybe uh, don't know who you are, maybe give a little context of who you are and what you do and kind of uh, why you're running for governor of Oregon. Definitely. So um, thanks, Kevin. Um, I'm a, currently a Yamhill County commissioner. I was elected in 2018. So Yamhill County is south of Washington County and north of Polk County and across the Willamette River from Marion County. Um, and my wife and I farm uh, vegetables, uh, tree fruits, certified organic vegetables and tree fruits, and OLCC licensed cannabis until a couple of months ago on a river island in the Willamette River um, in between Yamhill and Marion County. But we're on the Yamhill County side. Um, and I ran for Yamhill County Commissioner because I really felt like it was important to have um, a farmer and a rural resident and a scientist on the Board of Commissioners. But not only that, I really wanted to make sure that people were Um, had a commissioner who engaged with them, really thought deeply about the subjects and the challenges that we have in our county, um, and focused on making sure that people were safe and healthy. Um, And I didn't see that on the Board of Commissioners, and so I ran with that in mind. At the running for governor, um, again, I want to focus on 
healthy health and safety of Oregonians and health and safety of the place that we all depend upon. And as a farmer, I know that firsthand, um, you know, we're seeing climate change devastating communities, challenging our ability to grow certain crops, um, and generally making life a lot more uncertain for both urban and rural residents. Um, so I am in this race to win. I'm a certified, or I'm a, uh, I'm a certified, I'm a registered Democrat. Um, and part of the reason why I'm a Democrat is that I really feel like there's a place for governments in um, doing the work that we can't do on our own as individuals or as little communities. And that sometimes we really need that bigger frame, the people who build the bridges, keep our roads running um, and uh, run our schools as it were. Um, but I'm here because I, I'm pretty sure I'm here because you and I have a cannabis connection. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I didn't know that you, you knew that, but I, yeah, just had I, this, for, I had this sense. <laughs> yeah. I grew for six years uh, under the medical program. Uh, okay. We ran a small warehouse in Kaiser and I actually, I don't know how much into the weeds, no pun intended. I want to get on that, but um, you know, like I wouldn't mind talking about some of that legislation too, and sort of how that changed with what the voters passed and what was actually implemented. Maybe we can kind of talk about that. I just have some overall questions. I feel like I want to ask the questions that I've always wanted to ask of someone that's in a political position. Like, how do we deal with these broader questions? You know, I was talking to a couple of friends mm -hmm. in preparation for this and it was like, I don't really care about the budget of Oregon, but I want to know, like, how are we going to bring frustrated conservatives in the state of Oregon into the mix. And I think, you know, you as a farmer have uh, a unique position there because I, I do believe, you know, a lot of the rural areas in Oregon are, you know, largely farmlands uh, and, you know, a lot of the conservative areas there. But um, before we get into that, I did kind of want to talk about agriculture a little bit as well. Sounds great. Um, because, I, you know, looking at your, the stuff that you kind of your platform, it does seem like climate change is, is a major concern for you. And I, I kind of wonder how you square that with agriculture in general. You know, like I, I've gotten really into regenerative agriculture, no-till farming, something like that. And I kind of wonder what your take on agriculture's role in preventing further climate change and how you see that happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I would say that... Um... Uh, though um, some of the major legislation in Oregon that was attempted to be passed um, in what 2019 and 2020 uh, was specifically targeted at um, addressing the role of climate change in our communities. Um, and we saw uh, farmers and foresters among the, having the strongest pushback on that legislation. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that they're not the primary, some of the primary people impacted by it. Um, so, I mean, that's the, on one hand, right? Like uh, people who depend upon the environment for our living um, are hurt among the most um, in terms of our livelihood. So not discounting the fact that we've had ice storms that were devastating to elderly people um, on a fixed income in trailers in Yamho County who lost power for eight days, right? Like. Um, smoke for farm workers, right? Their lungs uh -huh. a year ago was devastating. Um, mm -hmm. But farmers themselves and their livelihoods are challenged every day by the weird and extreme weather that we're having directly related to carbon emissions. On the flip side of that, farmers can do a lot 
in our communities, both to like actually reduce carbon emissions, but to sequester carbon to like store it and also to in do the soil. That, yeah, and do some of that mitigation uh -huh. work too. Um, you know, one of the things that we're seeing all around us is drought, right? Um, like extreme uh -huh. drought in many areas. And with that is a loss of water in our streams. So I can actually see at some point, one, having farmers uh, working with urban areas to essentially lease their water rights. Um, so like uh -huh. anytime, so you, for example, the state of Oregon can, can be like, here's money for efficiency and irrigation. And then the farmer says, okay, here's water that I transfer to the city of Hillsboro or the city of Salem, right? Where they're actually taking the water that they're saving and connecting to a community of people for it. So there's a lot of different ways that farmers and foresters can be involved in actually addressing it. Hmm. Okay. Um, do you think that your position as someone who has been a farmer for the last more than a decade puts you in a unique position to maybe speak to farmers that are on the other end of the political spectrum? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the reality is that we are divided. Like I'm a liberal farmer and there are farmers who are conservative, but we all see the challenges that we're experiencing. Like we see them for real, the heat wave, um, we're looking at on some fields, they were harvesting grass seed right after that big heat wave in June. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was like the time of pure, like profitable ripening of grass seed. And so when some farms are seeing 50% reduction in germination yield, right? So like half of their seed isn't going to germinate. And, mm -hmm. and likewise, you know, uh, it, like, so that's big scale. Like, uh, I think of grass seed farmers as among the larger scale farms, but on the micro scale, um, I don't know if you like stay super tight into the, uh, into the cannabis community, but last year, right. The smoke that we had for two and a half right. weeks during ripening basically yes. meant that I should have had lights on my crop. And because I didn't mm -hmm. have lights on my crop, I, t I went from having 29% THC in some of my plants to 24%, which is, yeah. you know, is like, that's like a thousand dollar difference in, yes. a, in retail right. price. Right. Yeah. So definitely and, like we have, we, we need to find the things that connect us. And even if those things are that we're both experiencing, we're all experiencing hardship from the, from climate change, that's a starting point, right? Like, like it's a bridge to build. Yeah. And so I guess that brings me to the larger question of like, and this is, I mean, a lot of what I was thinking about and have been thinking about is more philosophical. At this point, I feel just politically exhausted. And it's hard to even wade into any of this stuff because it's like so overwhelming. You know, there's so much to look at. And I feel like the system is broken. You know, like, for instance, you know, you can't even say that. Kate Brown has done a bad job because eventually you would need the Democratic Party to back, you know what I mean? And it's like, that's how, like, all political candidates have to be mindful of what they say. What they, but because of that, they can't really ever take real positions on things. And mm. this, the system itself is designed, it incentivizes people to look out for themselves instead of their larger constituency and I think it it's just continues to get worse and degrade over time. And I wonder how you see, at least that's my perspective, maybe you don't see it that way, but what? how do you see us coming back from where we're at politically? 
I, I mean, I think they, you know, maybe some of the details aren't totally true for everybody, but I totally know what you mean, right? Like, I get the general sentiment of it. Um, I think that it's important for our leadership. Like, I think that one thing I saw at the federal level over the past four years, four and a half years, was that leadership at the federal, at the highest levels of government, influence how we all talk to each other and how we how we see the world right and what so what i see in this is that government like state leadership so the governor's office statewide leaders really need to be the ones modeling the working with people that they don't agree with and that maybe they don't even understand and maybe people that are anathema to them that like they might view as um morally wrong um and likewise like sides you know i like i actually think that we need to work together before we understand each other yeah well, does, does that make sense like i i think that yeah. that's a way to do it is that like damn we've got an emergency like pr maybe pretend like everything is an emergency because a lot of things are it is yeah and for right. uh, you know on the island when the, the island floods we're not like hmm did you yeah did you did How you did like you that post of mine election? on facebook yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And that's, I think what it's interesting that you're referring to them as leaders, because in my mind, I am careful not to call them leaders, because I feel like I don't, I can't pick more than a handful of people in politics that I know of that I would say, hey, this person is a real leader. The majority of them are kowtowing mm -hmm. to their, their populace, to their base, you know, they're doing whatever will get them reelected. And, and to me, that's not how the system was designed, but that's what the system has morphed into. And I think that's part of the reason if we look at like vaccine hesitancy, you know, anti-mask stuff, a lot of that I think stems from people don't trust the government. They don't trust the media and yeah. rightfully so. They've, you know, those entities have been dishonest for decades with them and now seem shocked when people aren't willing to just take what they right. say at face value. I know. You know I was how, actually, do you, so uh, how do you reconcile that? I was looking at, um, so I, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of context in the governor's office, but what we do have mm -hmm. is, is like a kind of a regional represent, a representative of the governor who works with counties. Um, and I, I looked back on some texts that I had to her um, from last year. And one of them was like, hey, y'all really need to be aware of the fact that there are going to be people, once you get a vaccine, there are going to be people who do not trust it. And it might mm -hmm. be across the political spectrum. And I hope that you're thinking about that and working with the very best communicators out there to deal with this. And it was like, oh yeah, look, look where we are. Right. Right. Yeah. So I, I, mean, so I do think, you, I think it stems were... from a long, you know, a lot of, a lot of mistrust. Yes. So if you were governor, you know, which is what you're hoping for here, mm -hmm. what's the what steps are you taking to help improve the situation that you're we're facing here with people not trusting government, not trusting the media? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, the I know that this sounds trite, but it's like you got to start somewhere. Right. Which is that mm -hmm. you literally go to people where they are and listen to them. Um, and it's amazing how so many misunderstandings and um, broken trust can be like mended a little bit by by literally just listening to people and not bringing your own agenda to it.
just being like, hey, mm-hmm. I'm here as a leader in your community to, to listen to you right now. Um, yeah. So that's that's one like super simple thing that I want to see our governor do is go around the state of Oregon and not be scared of people in their own communities and not have an agenda to that trip, to that tour, to that like working with them and before you get into a crisis mode. And then the second one is what I do all the time, which is that I intentionally build relationships with people that I either don't understand or know that I have differences with. Not, um, like this isn't a um, working with the devil kind of thing. Um, Like I'm not Mm -hmm. talking about, I'm not, um, let's see, I'm not talking about working like, hey, uh, Black Lives Matter activists, you really need to get together with Proud Boys and we just need to figure this out. I mean, mm-hmm. on a basic level, um, so uh, when I went into, came into office, I was like the liberal kid, hippie, pot farmer, um, like sure. to put stereotypes. And sure. immediately off the bat, the things that I proposed were um, vociferously opposed by our local chamber of commerce. And I was like, I need to figure this situation out. And so I actually went to Portland and I went to the Portland Business Alliance <laughs> and I was like, all right, Andrew oh. Hone, what do I do in order to build a good relationship with the local chamber of commerce, like a good faith oh. relationship? And he gave me some pointers and I, then I went back to my local chambers and I was like, all right, so here's the deal. I want to be your friend, but not really. I want to like work with you and have a trusting relationship. What do we do? What can we work on right now? And so that built up. And then so another like like the the building of it further was that when the pandemic hit, I started a, a live streamed biweekly roundtable so people mm-hmm. could watch uh, mayors, city councilors, county commissioners, congressional delegation, legislative delegation, business leaders and uh, members of the Latinx leadership and advocacy groups. I like I brought them all together and I was like, we need to all speak to the community, our truth for our particular community. And so that like it's a trust building, right, where you're building trust with your community, but you're also building trust in the relationships of leadership, too. So people can watch us interact and be like, huh, I don't agree with what he said, but I see that he is working with her right now. Hmm." Do you think that's so it takes a lot of time? Yeah. I, and that's what I'm wondering, Sorry. you know, like if, you know, all of that sounds great, like in theory, you know, I just wonder like if you become part of this, a cog in this system that seems to churn out, you know, it, it changes you, you know, do you worry about, can we actually make this happen? Because, you know, it's like, I just feel like the both sides get further and further apart from each other and really dig their heels in. And it's like, we're not getting anything done, you know, like, Trump gets elected and rolls back everything Obama did. And then Biden gets elected and rolls back everything Trump did. So we take one step forward, mm-hmm. take two steps back. No one can agree. Everyone says this is the worst president of all time. You know, this is the worst time. And it's just, it seems to me, it feels overwhelming, you know? Absolutely. And I, wonder, I think it's you know, totally you, reasonable to feel overwhelmed. And have you, what's the sense you get from people as your, traveling around you know talking about wanting to be the next governor yeah so i think one of the one of the solutions to that kevin is to um identify solutions at like all of the scales 
right? So like neighborhood level solutions and then like city level solutions and then county level solutions and state level so that there's like something that people can grab onto in their own community that's like, hey, we did that. Like together, we did that. Um, And it doesn't have to be the, it doesn't have to be the governor leading that and it doesn't have to be the governor providing funding or the state doing the work, but it can be the governor bringing that to the table of like, hey, let's do things that actually improve our community. And it doesn't have to be because of money and it doesn't have to be because of politics. So that's where like, those are the things that I really can see happening um, kind of all over the place. Uh, An example of that is that the city of Yamhill, right? They, um, they're out of water. Um, Okay. uh, They have surface water, right? And it's just like, it's drying up by the day. And so for their community, they were like, hey, we really need you to reduce your water use. And people in the city did it because they trusted their local leadership that they were making the right call in that moment, but they can't do it without having the county on the board and without the state on board. And so there's these like little solutions. So now we're like, okay, how do we get you more water? Like, do we tap my well on the other side of the county? Or do we talk to a farmer next door who might have a little bit of extra water on their water, right? So it's like these little things that I feel like are um, ways to build the trust and kind of knit communities back together again. But I I want to say, Kevin, that I don't, I'm under no illusions that we can like have a, a state and even regions that are like happy and together. Cause like, we're all really different. I mean, like you mm-hmm. and I have a cannabis connection, but we probably lead totally different lives, but mm-hmm. yet like we can talk about these things. Yeah. And I just wonder, I, I guess not even just from Oregon, but like as someone who's working in politics, what do you see the solution being like how do we how do we deal with this polarized society that we find ourselves in like what's what do you think like what are the how, what's the remedy yeah uh, well i mean you know the the sounds snarky but is actually probably fairly earnest and serious is um getting off of social media <laughs> hmm. okay yeah, And I know that that's like, that's really not a solution, but it's also part of it is that we all are getting fed and accelerating in our own ideas about um, what other people are like um, mm-hmm. through, through all these different methods. And so actually meeting each other in spaces that aren't that, I think is part of the solution is is meeting each other in places where we don't have a screen between us which i know is easier said than done right now (laughs) right right yeah for sure but like we have we have you know there are people who who uh earn their living and also earn their power off of dividing us right yeah and 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 it's like like my side and the other side are not you know they're not nobody is uh nobody's innocent in that Right. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Both sides are, are equally at fault. Um, can, what would you do like with the specific issue, like the homeless crisis? I mean, in Salem mm-hmm. and Portland, it's, it, you know, it seems to me like that's a genie you can't put back in the bottle. You know, if you were governor, how are you approaching that? And I missed a little bit of that, but I'm pretty sure I understand your question. Um, So in our community, 
what we did was we started by building relationships between providers and between the people who wanted to be part of the solution. And, and that was like super slow, like literally for a year and a half, um, all I did was build relationships between the local hospital and the public health and between the hospital and the advocacy and mental health groups and between the food bank and the advocacy groups and it, and between the businesses and the advocacy groups. Cause a lot of businesses are like, I want to be sympathetic. I want to like see the humanity in a person. And when they're pooping on my front door, it's hard, mm-hmm. right? Like right. there's, there's real issues there. Um, and you know, homeless camps attract people who want to hurt other people because they're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So there's like this whole cloud of things, but if we like look at it really focused, we realize that we need to build relationships in order to see the humanity in people and to get them housing. And so we like, that's what I did is I built relationships. And then when the pandemic hit, everybody was frustrated because we're like, we're not seeing, we're not seeing um, like a solution materialize. And then when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden we had FEMA money that we were able to house people in a motel. And so we took folks who were chronically homeless and who were fleeing things like domestic violence and with children, right? Like people who are the most vulnerable. And we managed to get them into housing by just putting them in a motel and daily case managing them and bringing them food. And lo and behold, they stabilized enough to move into permanent supportive housing. And so then it was like, okay, we've got a Section 8 voucher for you. We're going to get you into an apartment. People who the system uh, either had let down year after year or they couldn't even find because they people the people didn't trust the system at all anymore. So yeah. we've seen we've seen in our community like that building of relationships and people investing in it, getting from motels to permanent housing. Uh, I'd like the like I think we're at eighty five percent success right now. Uh, and oh. so I feel like that's I mean the city of Portland and Multnomah County are like wrestling with do we get people safe and stable. Or do we get them into housing? And it's like, we really need to do both at the same time. Yeah. So one of the things I've seen in Salem, at least, you know, where I live is, you know, the Unity Gospel Mission just built this massive structure for, you know, I think for homeless men, but, and they moved these two camps, one that was right off of I-5 and one that was on Hyacinth. But now those camps are just popping up in other locations mm-hmm. and you know they've opened this massive structure that costs you know millions of dollars and yet the problem doesn't seem to be less than it was you know and so i, I know in yamhill county i would assume that there's probably less homeless people there and and, and so and not saying not saying that the work you did wasn't important but i'm saying that it seems like it's a much bigger issue that's going to require more resources in some of the bigger cities. And it, it just, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's a good solution that's being proposed right now. Right. So Kevin, I, I mean, I'm happy or sad to inform you that on a per capita basis, Yamhill County does have more people who are homeless. Um, And it's, it's what um so all over Oregon homelessness is one of the biggest issues like literally all over Oregon and in Lake mm-hmm. County um 
so but it's it's like it's different causes and perhaps different solutions based on the fund the communities so in uh, lake county when i talk to county commissioners there they're like mental illness is the thing that's most challenging for people in order to get them mm-hmm. out of homelessness situations and for some right. people they're like they're camping in the desert because the the voices in their head have like keep them need to be as far away from other people um in our community and so in uh in marion county and in salem it's a um, from what i told because i talked to jimmy jones fairly regularly about this and he runs mid willamette valley community action agency for him it's Mm -hmm. a lot of severe and persistent mental illness that's like almost generational at this point right Mm -hmm. um and it's folks who cost the system a lot of money because they come into the emergency room and like all of those things we found in. So, but in Yamhill County, the largest demographic is women fleeing domestic violence with children, hmm. Hmm. which is its own unique set of yeah. people. Right. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that for the folks who have severe and persistent mental illness, if we get them housing where there's somebody on site so literally just like there's, you know, there's 16, this is an example. There's 16 apartment uh, uh, apartments in this complex. One of them has a full-time, like essentially apartment manager who is a peer who used to be homeless. And we found that we were spending about $100,000 less per month on emergency room visits as a county, as our like our local Medicaid provider, um, when they were housed is when they were unhoused. And it was simply because they had somebody to go to when they were you know, freaking out, when they were uncertain about their mental health or their physical health status. And the person in the apartment complex could be like, hmm, okay, well, I'm gonna give you some Advil give it two hours, we'll come back to this. Kind of that reassurance was saving Mm -hmm. the system so much money. It was way more than the cost of actually providing them housing. And then with the motel sheltering project, we are finding that getting people stable and getting them to trust housing providers was the really the best way to get them into stable housing. So like, it can work in, you know, in our community, it's, it's just a matter of building the relationships and then scaling it. And so it is going to cost, but like in, in Portland, you know, they're, they're putting massive amounts of money into it. But from what I understand, there's a lot less harmony between providers. Mm. Well, I know, you know, so I don't want to discount the scale of it. Sure. Sure. Um, I guess, you know, there are businesses down here too, that are experiencing a lot of loss because of that too. I know the owner of Rudy's Steakhouse posted a video on YouTube that went sort of viral um, showing like how much merchandise they'd had stolen. So I, yeah, I, I do know if there is like, is there someone in the state that's like in charge of helping lead the cause on this? Yeah. So Oregon housing and community services, uh, is the state agency. And I will say that Oregon housing and community services and the actual provider is on the ground, like mid Willamette Valley community action agency and the other ones that are all scattered throughout the state have a challenging relationship right now. So yeah. a good example of that right now is that OHCS, the Oregon state office there that's supposed to lead these things, um, set up a new software for these providers to help get them uh, the money out to renters so, you know, because we're they're at risk of eviction right now, right? And so sure, there's money sure. that goes to landlords and renters for paying back uh, rent because of the pandemic. 
And mm-hmm. right now, the software that OHCS provided for the work that the the providers have already been doing is so glitchy that um, they can't get the money out the door fast enough. And yet OHCS Mm. refuses to change um, and let providers do their own work. So just those relationship building of being like, hey, what do you need? And then when somebody tells you, you actually listen to it and take into account is really necessary. Hmm. Okay. Sorry, that and was then, a lot of words for your short. Yeah, question. no, no, that's. I mean, and that's that's the beauty of podcasts, right? Like, it's not. I think I wish politicians would do more podcasts because it gives you a chance to really explain your ideas and your thoughts and your platform versus trying to speak in sound bites. So yeah, no, oh my gosh, sound bites are just like they're they're garbage. Yeah, let me ask you if you were, you know, if you're governor. How do you handle what's going on in Portland right now? I mean, that seems like Portland seems like a black eye kind of on Oregon right now. You know, I mean, yeah, I was talking my my mom and my aunt. I had lunch with them last Sunday, you know, and they're in their 60s. And, you know, I was I was talking about, you know, is it safe to go downtown? You know, they were like, well, you know, if you go during the day, you watch where you park. And, you know, and then my one aunt said, well, it sounds like we're talking about like, you know, the worst parts of Detroit, you know, and and. Portland has never felt like that to me. I'd never mm-hmm. questioned whether I'd be safe going in there. But, you know, I mean, a couple of weeks ago when they had the Antifa and uh, Proud Boys protest, there was somebody shooting behind the mailbox, you know, like firing weapons. You know, That's, oh, no yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, right. Like in yes. um, at Mod Pizza. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, what do you what would that seems like a hot mess there so what do you what would you do how do you address that yeah yeah so a good starting point is to listen to people and i know that's like that's it seems trite but it's really hard to do um Mm -hmm. and it's a really good starting point the other thing that i have seen and this is like i'm you know on the record with this um is um advocating for um the portland police and like i'm the governor's not in charge of the portland police that's the mayor on the mayor and the chief of police but um i'm i don't i'm terrible at staying in my lane so i'll just say that um when portland police or the multnomah county sheriff's office or the oregon national guard hold a line between protesters and counter protesters or between proud boys and um, anarchists um, or anti-fascists when they physically keep them separated it's kind of boring because nothing happens Mm -hmm. and i think that's a really good way to um, reduce the tension overall Um, and it and it's again it's kind of boring but like the lack of intervention. So the Portland police chief said, we are not going to intervene. You all yeah, need to was... just like keep your peace. And everybody knew that wasn't going to happen. Why? What was the, what was the impetus behind that decision? You know? Yeah. So um, I, I, I mean, I know the rationale, which is that um, uh, at this point, people are so fired up by the presence of Portland police that um, mm-hmm. the, the PPB feels like their presence um, is like pouring gas on a fire 
Um, from my perspective, if PPB can't keep the peace, then Multnomah County Sheriff or the Oregon National Guard under, or the OSP, Oregon State Patrol, under the leadership of the governor should step in and keep that peace. Because the fact of the matter is that nobody benefits from chaos and right. everybody gets hurt by chaos. And um, like the um, people getting shot with paintballs and people being beat up in their cars, um, they're like um fireworks being shot at a gas station right yeah like like businesses and people going about their daily lives get hurt right Right. like if somebody's in a wheelchair going down the street and somebody thinks they're on one side or the other or they just get caught in the crossfire that's that's just like not okay and it's not a society that i want to live in or i want to raise kids in yeah well and that you know i think it's it's good. I, I like the fact that I've been able to bring up like hot button issues and you haven't strayed away from them. So, you know, kind of with the, the police thing, what's been really interesting to me is, you know, as I watch social media, like when the Black Lives Matter protests were really hot and heavy during the pandemic, I saw some of my friends like defund the police and, you know, that lived in Portland, mm-hmm. like defund the police, blah, blah, blah. And now those same people are like, I'm so mad. There's like needles everywhere. So, you know, there's all this violence and it's like, well, you know, yeah, we, because it seems like we are reacting to situations instead of being thoughtful about how best to solve problems. And out of those reactions, we're sometimes making decisions that aren't great, you know, and actually beneficial to the greater good. And I feel like that's sort of what happened with the police is that, you know, Everyone wanted to be, and listen, I, I think there needs to be a ton of police reform. I think, you know, there needs to be a lot of stuff. I you. do believe that there's too much violence that's unnecessary happening. I, I'm 100% on board with that. But I think you can feel that way and also feel like we can't defund the police. You know what I mean? Like that, because if we're taking money away, that's potential money we could be using to train. And, you know, so, but we don't think that way. Because if I say, I support the police, you know, being a part of keeping the peace, then anyone that doesn't agree with me now, I'm all, well, you you know, but like that reactionary Mm, mindset, mm -hmm. I think is part of the reason that we're so divided. And I don't know how to fix that because it's like, we tell people they need to start meditating or I, I don't know, but like people are just so reactionary to all things right now that it's hard to, have any kind of like general discourse anymore. Right, right. So, um, and you know, I, I have the, the privilege of living in a rural area and, um, in, you know, in my role as county commissioner, interacting with, for example, sheriff's deputies, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I also have the, the privilege and the opportunity to listen to um, folks who are pushing for racial justice and for police reform in the city of Portland. Like, I get to I get to listen and hear from both of them. And I see a lot of um, similar needs where people don't feel safe in their communities. And sometimes it's because of the police interactions with them. So Senator Lou mm-hmm. Frederick, sorry, state senator from inner uh, North Portland, Northeast Portland, right? So he lives uh, close to the formerly known as Albina neighborhood or the Albina neighborhood. Um, okay. He still gets profiled. He gets pulled over regularly by Portland police and Multnomah County sheriffs. And 
they they know him. Like when they pull him over and they come and they see him, they're like, oh, hi, Senator Frederick. But he still feels at risk for every time he interacts with the police. Right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't feel I don't feel unsafe. He feels mm-hmm. unsafe. And so I want to respect that and recognize that that is a real, real perspective. And the data shows that he is less safe than me in a, like me in a rural area and me in an urban area. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and he's black, like Senator right. Lee Frederick. Right. Um, so I want to, I want to recognize that. And I also want to recognize that different communities are also different, but we can still approach this from a, is this making the public safer question? Like, is this decision, is this policy, is this change or keeping things the status quo, is that making our community safer? And in some cases, so like, uh, let's take as an example, traffic stops, right? Traffic stops are dangerous for police. Traffic stops are also dangerous for people who get pulled over. So we have the technology now to send somebody a check or sorry, we have the technology to send somebody a check. We also have the technology to send somebody a citation for Mm -hmm. a traffic infraction. And we don't actually need to put traffic officers or the the public at risk. Right. Cause like, you're just going to get that. And if you don't pay it, right. If you don't pay that ticket or contest it, then you, you know, it goes on your record, right? Like, Right. You have these things. So we have the ability to like triage traffic safety and traffic stops. Like that's one thing we can do right away. The other thing we can do right away to like reduce the tension in the interactions, especially for people who are severe and persistently mental ill, right? Like people who they're, they still can benefit from treatment, but a lifetime of trauma means that they are out on the street, incapable Mm -hmm. of like, uh, executive function like we don't need to have police be the ones to respond to that to somebody mm-hmm. who's standing in the street screaming or taking their clothes off in the middle of a mall like we can actually have mental health workers or ambulances responding to that and that's what the like cahoots model in eugene is all about and that's what the uh, portland street response is all about in portland right is it's you could say that it's defunding police, right? <laughs> because it's mm-hmm. taking some of their work and it's shifting it to other people. But in this case, it's all about having the appropriate response to the situation. So we can do that, but we can also hold police accountable. And that's what I would think of as police reform is like really taking the Department of Safety Standards and Training, which is part of the Oregon State Government and holding people through it to a high standard. Yeah, and I, I'm going to sound pro-police what I said here, but I actually <laughs> ha- was profiled when I was in college, and I mean, I, I can I understand the like fear of like, wait a minute, I'm getting pulled over for no legitimate reason. What's you know, and then being worried like, what is going to happen here? Sure. You know, but part of the accountability seems to be body cams, which I totally support. I mean, I think they're making the work better. One thing that I think is tough though is that police do a very tough job and they see really tough things, you tough know what I mean? Things, they, yeah. And, and if we're going to require them to wear body cameras, we need to be not okay, but we need to get used to seeing things that we haven't seen before. You know, even if a, if an officer fires their weapon and kills someone that was reaching into their pocket, like, it seems like when that video posts right away, it's, 
oh, this officer needs to be fired. It's like, well, look what happened. That that suspect ran away and then reached for something. You know what I mean? Like that officer's mm-hmm. life was in danger at that point. He didn't know what he was reaching for. And so it's tough because it, I hear a lot of people talking about police accountability through body cams. But then when the footage comes out showing that the police officer is actually within their right, when justified force, there's still like an outrage about it. It's like, well, we just have to get used to seeing things that are hard to see because we didn't have to see those things before body cams existed. Yeah, I see what you mean. Um, And I also want to acknowledge that people who are on the front lines of public safety, whether they're police or fire or mental health counselors, they also need to have the best mental health services that we possibly can provide for them so that they can do their job well without having trauma in their life. Right. Like I hope that we can recognize that, um, that seeing violence, um, or seeing death on a regular basis is itself trauma. Right. Well, and and give people the tools to deal with that. Yeah. The thing that worries me about with the body, the responses I'm seeing initially to the body cam stuff Mm -hmm. is like, so not only does this officer shoot and kill someone, which is a whole set of traumas. Now they're crucified in the public, in the court of public opinion for when their actions end up being justified after investigation. And it's like, well, now they have Mm. trauma on top of trauma because not only do they, you know, have, you know, the trauma of what happened. Now they have the fallout of, you know, being called a murderer, and a, you know, and just being raped over the coals, maybe doxxed or whatever. And, you know, and again, I, I, it's, it's hard because it's coming off like, oh, I'm pro-police. Like I, I'm not at all. I'm not mm-hmm. anti-police either, but I do think that we need to have a rational conversation about these things. We need to have, we need to be open to understanding multiple perspectives within the deeper issue. Yeah. And I would say that, um, while, um, I can, um, I can have perspectives on it. Right. Um, I also, as governor, the governor really needs to be leading these conversations in my view. Um, so that, because the the governor has that ability to pull people in that otherwise aren't going to come to the table. Right. Um, Mm. so that, so that we can make sure that everybody, so that we make sure that everybody's values are heard and also that their ideas are heard. You know, like there's, um, uh, we have a particular perspective in the United States on policing that like no offense came out of slave patrols, right? Like that's right. That's part of our right. history of it, but yes. other countries have a different policing uh, perspective. And so if we can bring in some of those different perspectives, I think we'll just be better as a society. Right. Like, I don't yeah. want to see police officers traumatized by their experience, and I don't want to see police officers harming other people so that they're traumatized. Right, exactly. And I no, hope I, that none I, of us do. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, okay, so we've kind of waded into, like, the, the deeper waters and a lot of those issues. What are some things that you would just, like, if someone's going, who is this guy? What are some things you would want people to know about you or about what you would do as governor? What, what things haven't we talked about that we need to? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that right now we're in this place where we thought we were out of the pandemic and we really are really, really not. Um, and I just want to say that that's something that weighs on me all the time. You know, um, 
from the very beginning, I took the responsibility as the local public health authority very seriously. Um, working with people in the community to like keep case counts as low as possible. The next governor is going to be dealing with the pandemic, guaranteed, no doubt about it. Even if it's just um, COVID as part of our lives, as opposed to COVID as the like crisis that it is. Um, and the next governor is going to be dealing with climate change. And the next governor is going to be dealing with political violence and political intimidation or intimidation as a political tool. And all of those things are things that in my job as county commissioner and in my role as a farmer in our community, like I work on every single day. Um, and I feel like we, we really need that in our next governor. Um, we don't need to have the institution bringing forward the next person in line. We really need mm -hmm. to have somebody who people from across the political spectrum are excited about having as their governor that they can be like, damn, I'm glad that that person is there, even if I don't agree with them. Hmm. Okay. And that's, that's, and you know, that's what I do every day is, you know, making sure people know that they're cared about and know that they have a voice in their community. And I want to give you a chance to plug your, your socials and stuff here in a second, but you know, you bring up an interesting point about COVID um, and in the role of government in COVID, you know, I got the vaccine. I had no problem with it. I, I, I think it was, mm -hmm. I think people should get vaccinated. Um, I do. It does make me uncomfortable to have entities telling, requiring it, mandating it. That stuff makes me uncomfortable. Um, it reminds me kind of September 11th when the Patriot Act was passed, you know, and it was like, Hey, there's this eminent threat give us your rights. We need to be able to surveil people. We need to be able to, well, mm. once that threat lessened, the government didn't return those rights, mm -hmm. you know? And so I guess what makes me hesitant about what's going on now is that, you know, the government hasn't come out and said, Hey, you need to get this vaccine. But what they've allowed is businesses, which I understand too, as a business owner, I get you're trying to protect your bottom line and keeping people healthy and working is going to help that. But it mm -hmm. also makes me nervous that entities are now making decisions about individuals' medical decisions. That, some of that makes me uncomfortable. Now, again, like I said, I think people should get vaccinated, but I, I feel like I can feel that way and also be uneasy about entities trying to like push people into making decisions. Yeah. What do yeah. you? What's your take on that? I think that the example of um, September 11th. Well, I mean, it's coming up right on our 20th anniversary. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think that's an interesting way to think about it because, um, you know, somebody asked me re recently. You know, they want my position on vaccine mandates, um, and mm -hmm. I was like, <sighs> right now, Yamhill County is sending a refrigerated morgue trailer to Southern Oregon. And I mm. hope to God that never happened. And that's an emergency. Right. And so I feel, I view that as a failing of the system that we get to the point where that's necessary. And sometimes mm -hmm. that is necessary. And that's why I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to have, I don't want to have mandates for vaccinations, right? Like mm -hmm. that's to me, that represents a failing and it represents that 10 steps ago, we missed it. 
and we went down the wrong path to get there i mean frankly it was it felt really good for four weeks to not have a mask on and to not think about covid yeah it felt good it It felt good and i honestly think that the cdc um dropped the ball when they said hey you know if you're vaccinated feel free to live your best life and if you're not vaccinated feel free to keep doing what you've been doing i don't think Mm -hmm. that that was one the right message and really the best thing to do for our communities. And I think that the governor is saying, yep, every everybody's good. Let's let's all party now, um, I think was the inappropriate thing. And that's as a person who, you know, I was so grateful to take my mask off and to not have restrictions and capacity in businesses. But uh-huh. there have been many missteps along the way from not figuring out how to talk to people about the vaccine, right? Like, I was like, hey, governor, you're going to need to figure this one out in June of last year. Right. So there's many steps along the way from communication to actually implementing things to like not listening to people along the Mm -hmm. way. That is all like this is the non soundbite version, right, of that. I think that they are a tool that we can use right now in order to keep things open. Um, in order to keep businesses thriving or to get them back to a state of thriving and to keep people in schools. Like for me, it's it's very clear how important at this point public education is and an in-person public education. So if, mm-hmm. we, if we can increase um, our vaccination rates with people who are hesitant, but are going to get it because it's now mandated for their work, like that's fine with me because we have medical and religious exemptions still in the state of Oregon that are quite robust. Um, You know, for school, like I'm more familiar with it for schools because um, it's legislation that comes up all the time challenging the medical and religious exemptions. So we have Mm -hmm. some pretty robust protections for people who really can't get it um, because they're immunocompromised or they have myocarditis um, or because they're part of a group, a religious group who absolutely it's wrong for them. That's like a long answer to we shouldn't have gotten to this point anyway. Yeah, which I I agree with. And I guess, you know, the whole thing, I guess, just makes me nervous. Anytime the government, I I find myself being more of a libertarian. Um, They just don't do a very good job of organizing themselves. But, I, I, you know, I mean, I think there are certain rights like education, public health that you know everyone should have access to but i also think the government should kind of leave people alone if you know while they're doing their thing so it does make me a little nervous just to have the government intervening because it just seems like anytime you forfeit your rights to the government you never get those rights back and so that i guess that's the only reason that i, I was hesitant if, it, if i, I it think you're temporary i think it's right i'd be totally on board I think you are, I think it's really important to have that perspective. I mean, yeah. we definitely saw it with the Patriot Act. We're like, oh, huh. Now you, oh, okay. You, we, we just gave that up and we're never getting it back. Um, I yeah. do want to, I want to note that um, there was a lot of pushback from Republican legislators and Republican elected officials across the state on the ongoing emergency that the governor had in place, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I supported in this last legislative session was uh, my friend Marty Wildey. He's a representative from Lane County. Um, And he 
he put forward a piece of legislation that would give guardrails to that state of emergency powers. Um, and I thought that was a really good, as a candidate for governor, I thought that was a really good um, balanced position of uh, requiring a justification to the legislature on an ongoing basis for these like exceptional circumstances that we're in. Because really, in, okay. um, in amidst the pandemic, um, legislators had very little role to play, um, and I think that 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 should change in something that's a you know a global in nature and an ongoing long term emergency. Yeah, like we we okay. all elect them, so right. Okay, I I, I like that. So it's, you know, people it's kind of a wonky this... answer, but. <laughs> Yeah, no. So people listen to this and they're like, okay, I like this guy. He really, he really, you know, I think he'd do a good job. How do people support you? How do they get involved? Where do they find you? Uh, give us some information on that. Yeah, yeah. The main, um, our main campaign webpage is kulafororion.com. And you can, there can you, you spell can. spell that? Yeah, K U L L A F O R. O R E G O N, um, which I I was a spelling bee champion when I was in third grade. Hey, so. there we go. <laughs> and then uh, add that on, to the resume. That's right. Um, on social media, it's just at Casey Kula. Um, you can find okay. me on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. And really, okay. on the website, you can you can donate. You can volunteer by filling out a form. You can just sign up for the newsletter so you hear what's happening, and you can see okay. kind of all of my different positions on things of importance to the community. What do you, what are your biggest needs campaign wise? Like, could you, do you need people to knock on doors and make phone calls or like, what, what, what would you really, what would help boost? I mean, you're probably the only candidate that will come on the podcast. So, I mean, I'm obviously cheering for you now. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so how do we, how do we help accelerate the campaign here? Yeah, definitely. I mean, money is uh, money is the thing that unfortunately okay. that uh, takes people from, you know, every vote is a vote and votes matter. But if you don't get your name in front of people, then they don't know to vote for you. And it takes right. money to do that. So it's staff time. It's advertising time um, that like real nuts and bolts of the campaign. And then one of the best things about modern technology is that you can text people from home. So we have a super simple texting platform that people can use to reach out to folks across the state. And it's like, mm. you don't even have to go like this to do it, which is pretty awesome. Okay, cool. And since, right, since well, I'm young, young enough, I love texting. So it's, it's the thing for me. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. And we can link all that stuff in the show notes. We can link your, your socials and your webpage. But uh, yeah. Oh, and then we're we... we're gonna have uh, yeah, in a September and early October, and there's a list on the campaign website. Um, but um, campaign events like listening sessions, um, where you can you know get stickers and buttons and hats and uh, tote bags uh, all around the state. So be looking for that when you go to the website. Sorry. Okay. Kevin. Perfect. No, no, no. I was just gonna ask. Is there anything else that we missed? So we got that. Is there anything else though that we need to? You want people to be aware of? No, it's um, let's get together when, to get a healthier and uh, safer state. When is election day so that we know when we need to vote and whatnot? 
Exactly. Well, that's the really good point is that May 18th of 2022 is the primary election. And in the okay. state of Oregon, the your next governor will most likely be a Democrat. So that is going mm-hmm. to be the most important election. And I think it's April 12th is the, your deadline to register to vote as a Democrat. So if you're not registered okay. as a Democrat, you have to change your party affiliation in order to vote in the Democratic primary. Yeah. Can we talk about that, too? That has always annoyed me. Like, I don't like the fact that you have to pick a political party in order to vote in the primaries. Right. Is there, yes. Is there a so reason some other states, some other states have open primaries. Right. It's it's what? really up to the party. Yeah. I, I mean, is this something we can change? Because I just don't see it seems to me to limit voter participation. So like, what's you are, the purpose of it? You are hitting on something that's actually a pretty important thing, which is that in Oregon, because of our like automatic motor voter registration, where if you go to the DMV, you're automatically registered to vote is that mm-hmm. most people going forward don't declare a party. They're actually non-affiliated. So right. the, the then, proportion of non-affiliated gets bigger over time. And that means that those are all people who don't have a say in a primary right now. Right. Okay. So is and, that something and that's a, to that's a party. Yeah, that's a party, uh, a party politics decision to make. And that's one that I will definitely advocate for because there's so many people, especially younger people, who are like, why would I declare a party? except right. that they don't get to vote in a primary. Okay. All right. I, we've got that on record. He's, you're going to try to change it when you're in office. Now, can I also get on record that when you win, you're going to come back on the podcast so I can say I have the governor of Oregon on my podcast? Oh, yeah, but we have to talk about cannabis if I come back on. Okay, I'm down. I'm, I'm <laughs> down. And actually, I wouldn't mind touching on that for a second. Do you Do you think that's helps or hurts or has no effect on your campaign i think it helps i mean people love their plants in oregon right like um just whatever your uh view of the legal system or the recreational system or the medical system um people love their plants and they love cannabis frankly i mean i it's it's a it's an important part of our culture i mean i think that when when it's federally legal we are going to be the you know the the place that people talk about as having the best cannabis um just like craft beer 100 well and we started the medical program was started first in oregon correct we were the first state so i mean it's been legal here the longest Uh, on a Mm -hmm. kind of Legal note there, I, you know, I was driving by dispensary the other day and saw $75 ounces. And it made me think, like, are we, do we still have people in prison for nonviolent drug offenses? Do we as still have as, people that... As far as I know, no. Okay. okay. Uh, so there was, a, there was a bill that was passed. Um, actually, it was chief sponsor was Senator Lou Frederick that I had mentioned earlier. Oh, okay. And he's been working really hard to make sure that um, there's automatic expungement um, of records okay. f- when we decriminalize things or reduce the penalties Perfect. for them. Because I think that's a Shout really important component of it. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> he told okay. me all about it. So that's why I know. <laughs> okay. What, what specifically did you want to talk about cannabis wise? Oh my gosh. There's so much. I mean, for me, um, as, as a former pot farmer, right. Um, since I sold my license, um, having the system that was brand new, like brand new legal, right? Like a regulated system where we could sell it. I mean, the state was part of the project and part of the picture. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's one thing that we can 
bring to the world is like how to do this well and hopefully learn from some of our mistakes. Like I will say that I know that it was really hard for a lot of the original growers um, in the medical system when we opened up investment to people from outside of the state, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that was I was gonna say we're doing it right. Like I I because I experienced that. So yeah, you know, we we were we were growing in a warehouse, had enough cards, we were legal the entire time. And then when it went wreck, you know, the law we passed said that in order to have any ownership stake in any cannabis business, you had to have be a re- Oregon resident for at least two years. Yep. And then I think the, the government saw a cash grab by opening up the market to outside investors, you know, and in the, in the short term, they made a lot of money. In the long term, to me, what I saw was it took small businesses in Oregon, crushed them. It pushed out all the small growers. My all of my friends yep. were no longer growing, and you know the single chain dispensaries. My mom and my aunts owned a dispensary. You know it started to push mm-hmm. them out as you know Nectar and Chalice and all yep. these other chains started to take over. And you know, to me, I was like, well, if those small businesses continue to exist, we keep paying taxes in the state where now these outside entities are making the money and it's going out of the state. And so that was really frustrating to me. And also it seemed like, to be honest, the quality of the cannabis in the dispensaries was not nearly as good as these guys who've been growing for 20 years out on their farm, you know? So yeah, um, I think you hit it. Like, I think it's the, the, I will say it's the, um, the thing that I think about as being the biggest failure of um, the, the legislature specifically when they adopted yes. the rules around it. And um, if you talk to Senator Prezansky, who was the head um, of the kind of like the, I forget what they called it, the Joint Committee on Marijuana Regulation or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. He says that was the biggest mistake um, that they made. Um, and that he wishes that they could undo is the allowing in um, the the out of state folks on it because it was in his view of it was that it was intended to be a project that brought people in out of the shadows and gave mm-hmm. them like a new chance in a legal system, right? And it's, and instead it left them behind a hundred percent because these big money these deep pocket businesses came in and just waited out the the price of cannabis crashed. And yep. they just waited everybody out, took the losses for a couple of years while, you know, those of us who couldn't afford to lose that money dried up. And I remember when I went to the city of Kaiser to start the rec process, mm-hmm. they told me, you know, you were zoned properly before, but now that the rec laws have come into place, the zone, your zoning is no longer going to be valid. And I mean, I had oh, spent that's so hard. large sums of money to get that up and running. I, I broke down right there, you know, so oh like, my this gosh, is, you know, that terrible. So awful. Yeah. So yeah, right now in Yamhill County, there um, th- some folks who are very anti-cannabis um, are trying to push a set of regulations that would greatly restrict both on-farm growing and on-farm processing. Um, and mm. so I'm trying to get out the, the, the word on that because we really don't, we don't need to go backward. We've found that no. businesses can work alongside each other, that there's really not conflict. Right. Well, and that's the thing too, you know, like being outside, like I had never tried cannabis until I was 32, you know? And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as I got into the industry, you know, you have this dare mindset of all, oh, all drugs are bad. And then you get into cannabis and you're like, Oh my gosh, all the people Wait here are just like, <laughs> yeah, they're just like super nice. 
you know, they're all like sharing tips on how to grow better gardens. Mm-hmm. You know, they have amazing organic vegetables. You know, it's like you start realizing like this is not anything. Once you get into it, it's nothing like what people that don't have any experience with cannabis would lead you to believe. Yeah. And, you know, we uh, in Oregon, right, like we talk a lot about and we moan the urban rural divide. And I'm like Mm -hmm. this like food. Cannabis is one of those things that connects, you know, southern Oregon with Portland. Right. Like Mm -hmm. there are things that actually can bring us together. Um, And I I think that cannabis is one of them. But I also think it's a huge economic driver for rural areas. If we're just thinking about like where the jobs are at. Like I have a friend who is getting ready to open a 30 employee grow and processing facility in the County and like 30 good paying jobs is a big deal here. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, yeah, I agree. You should definitely come back on. We'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot about cannabis. That sounds great. I'm a huge proponent and I really appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're in the middle of this campaign and you've got other responsibilities as well. So I'm super grateful for you taking the time to, to chat. Kevin, thank you so much for inviting me and thanks for the good questions. Yeah.